Do you want to know more about vampires, werewolves, zombies, and man-made monsters? Would you like to know more about the classic Universal Monster movies responsible for creating the entire horror genre? Then listen to our podcast, Let's Talk Monsters. Where we discuss everything monsters. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction. And free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. From the Apostrophe Podcast Network. Previously on Booby Trap. They were these two really scary looking like Charles Manson guys. I just started running. You know, I didn't even ask questions. (laughs) Because of Tony's lying, he always had to take the stuff with a grain of salt. I just said, okay, well, if you know some guy who has pot, like, let's go. And I said, where is he? He says, it's at the trade wind. The guy acted like, talked like he was connected with the mafia. Chuck knew who I was and, and actually wanted to meet with me because he was looking for someone to sell some pot for him at Hallover. He had this cold stare and these dark eyes. If this guy decided to just cut my throat, he would do it with the drop of a hat. He confirmed it. He said, yeah, we were setting you up, Mike. And that was the first time I ever heard anything about what was really going on with Scouting Troop 85. Since 1910, the Boy Scouts of America have been a venerable institution and a rite of passage for young men all over the country. Its annual membership still numbers in the millions, even after the scandal of 2012, detailing sexual abuse within the organization. In this episode, we'll find out more about how scouting played an important role in Richie's life, as it did Chuck Falco's. But first, I wanted to hear more about Tony and Jerry's bizarre depositions they gave as part of a pretrial procedure to the district attorney's office and Chuck Falco's defense lawyers. Season 1 of the Miami Chronicles Booby Trap, Episode 4. 
Okay, so first of all, I'm just going to describe here what a deposition is. Yeah. Because, though we've all heard that word before, uh, like you, I didn't really know the specifics until I looked it up. So basically, a deposition is a witness testimony that is sworn out of court. And it's considered um, part of the discovery process. So the defense and or the prosecutor use it to gather information. And this is all done under oath. Does that sound about right? Yeah. Okay. It's not a complicated read. I mean, it's it's written out more or less like a play with Q's and A's, you know, so it'll just say, you know, question, answer, question, answer. And um, and so they're, they're different in the sense that Tony's, um, Tony was subpoenaed by the state, okay? Mm-hmm. And so uh, the lawyer at the time, the assistant state attorney was Kenneth Drucker. And so he's mainly asking Tony questions in this. And he's the one who's trying to figure out what's going on with the keys and these other little things that Tony um, had that had belonged to Chuck. And, um, and he's also, at the same time, trying to establish sort of a level of consistency with Richie's character. Like, what kind of kid was Richie? Mm-hmm. And um, remember, by this time, Chuck had already been arrested for manslaughter. Yeah. How did that come about? Because uh, in the beginning, he wasn't arrested. Yeah. Initially, uh, Chuck wasn't arrested because there was no precedent for what he did. Um, People just figured that you had a right to protect your property um, if someone's breaking into your house. And and so the cops weren't sure if what he did was wrong. I mean, obviously, the death of a 14-year-old boy is, is bad. But then again, he, you know, Richie was the one breaking into the house. But after about a week or two, I think the state of Florida sort of concluded that, yeah, this is manslaughter. So they decided to arrest Chuck. So at this point, the state is trying to build a case. And so they're bringing in people to try and, you know, flesh out the situation and see, okay, what can they build on? What sort of kid was Richie? You know, um, that kind of stuff. So Tony Simmons... Uh, gets a subpoena. Chuck's lawyer is present at the time. There's actually two lawyers for Chuck. One is named um, Leonard Robbins, and the other one is Paul Lipton. Lipton seems to be the one who does most of the... um, Like the lead attorney or something? Yeah, I think so. So there's examination, you know, which is... It's not really interrogation, which is what cops do. It's more like, you know, you're questioning the witness or whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then there's a cross-examination. The, you know, the, the defense attorney can also ask questions. So, um, so that's how these things work. I'm pretty sure this was all in preparation for a hearing, right? Because before a judge decides whether a case is going to go to trial, they usually have a hearing and to sort of figure out, okay, is this a serious enough offense? Who's bringing charges? All this other stuff. And then the judge decides if, if they're going to go to trial, so this is still more or less early-ish in the process. Um, this deposition of Tony's is in September of 1979. Something that was very clear in Tony's deposition was, yet again, his tendency to lie. His testimony is a maze of nonsense that even succeeds in frustrating the interrogating lawyer. One of the main questions posed by the assistant DA was regarding things that were stolen from Chuck's house. 
I asked Mike to tell me more about this confusing and disturbing confession from Tony Simmons. So in his deposition, um, the lawyer wants to know about items that were in Tony's possession that belonged to Chuck. So things that had been stolen from Chuck's house that just wound up at Tony's house. And how did they know that? Well, they knew it because he, I think Tony called Chuck after Richie was killed. Mm -hmm. And Tony told Chuck that he had some of his things. So Tony offered that information uh, to Chuck, almost as like an olive branch. I think Tony was trying to get into good standing with Chuck at this point. Um, which is kind of an odd thing, yeah. you know, but um, I'm pretty sure Tony called Chuck and said, Chuck, I have some of your things. And Chuck said, well, how did you get them? And he said, well, Richie gave them to me. Richie stole them from your house and told me to hang on to these things. The focus really shifted to the silver dollars at one point because that's money, you know. Right. And we talked about it in another episode. But just to recap for everybody uh, Richie had eventually started stealing other things. Yeah. Uh, things of value from Chuck's house to try to throw off Chuck's suspicion, right? Yeah. And that I think Richie wanted Chuck to think that uh, whoever was breaking into his house was really after the silver dollars and not the pot. Okay. But then what he would do, Richie would give this stuff to Tony to hang on to. Because remember, Richie's parents were really strict. And if Richie got caught with any of this stuff, he'd be grounded for like the rest of his life. Yeah. So, um, so he would give this stuff to Tony to hang on to. And Tony would put it in this little safe space, like in his cabinet or something. So, yeah, I think Tony admitted to Chuck that he had some stuff. He gave it all back to Chuck. I think Chuck appreciated that. And then that's pretty much what the line of questioning follows, these, these items that were stolen. Okay, but so Tony claimed that he was missing some stuff, too. Like, some stuff was stolen from him. Yeah. The assistant state attorney... Uh, Drucker's asking um, Tony what sorts of things were missing from Tony. And Tony says, you know, I used to collect little bottles, different different kinds of bottles, things like old whiskey bottles that are really nice. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then he just says uh, one of those popped up at Chuck's house. So he noticed that something that he had owned, you know, was all of a sudden at Chuck's house. The same thing happened to me, by the way. Richie was over my house once. Um, I had a a little stone. Oh, yeah, you mean a toke stone. Yeah. Oh, I remember those. A toke stone, yeah. So I just called them a stone. So I had a stone, and it was really cool. Like, all my friends thought it was, like, the coolest one. It was like, I went to this head shop in our neighborhood, and it was the last one in the counter, and it was uh, it was cream-colored, and it had a really nice sort of drawing, sort of really colorful uh, marijuana leaf on it. And um, all my friends thought it was like the coolest stone. Whenever I would, you know, pull it out, if we were smoking a joint, I would use it. My friend's like, oh, that's so cool. Where'd you get that? And I was like, well, I got it from the store, but, you know, it was the last one and all this other stuff. So um, that thing went missing. You know, Richie and Tony came over my house one day, and I'm sure that Richie stole it. Um, I didn't know it at the time. I just thought it was missing for a really long time. And one day I was over Tony's house, and I, you know, that little night table that he had he would keep things sort of in the second shelf lower down sort of thing and in the back of it like behind his little alarm clock there'd be like these little things and I looked behind there and I saw my stone and I said to Tony I go you know this is mine right and he said that's not yours and I said you know it's mine like everyone in this neighborhood knows that's mine (laughs) 
I could tell by the way he was answering me that, you know, he was trying to protect Richie, you know, because I said, you know, I said, look, did you steal it? He said, I don't steal things. I was, okay, I don't think he stole it, Tony, because, you know, if you were stealing things, you could steal things from my house left and right. You know, you're in my house all the time. Yeah. And I also put it together because I noticed that it was missing around the time that Richie and Tony came over my house that time. So I'm sure that Richie stole it and then just gave it to Tony to hang on to. So it turns out that Richie was stealing from a lot of people. As a matter of fact, I've come to realize that Richie was most likely a kleptomaniac. At some point, probably you know, six months to a year before he was killed, he got into this mindset. It, it was something that this kid was into. Now, it might have just been a phase. Um, you know, he might have grown out of it. But yeah, he, uh, he definitely seemed to have an issue with it. One of the items that was mentioned in the deposition was a set of keys. Um, now, we, I referenced this in the earlier episode. That at one point, it was assumed that Richie had a set of keys. And he was using those keys to get into Chuck's house. A couple times that they, you know, in quotations, broke into Chuck's house, they didn't break anything. They just used the keys and went through the front door. Because remember, Chuck was in Kendall. They knew he wasn't going to come home, right? And they just waltz into his house and they knew where he kept his pot and they would just take a few, you know, just enough to roll a couple joints and then they'd leave. And that was it. It was just like, this is great. We have like pot, you know, we can just get it whenever we want. But then Chuck noticed that some of the pot was missing and he noticed that no one, as far as he could tell, no one broke into his house. So then Chuck started thinking like, oh, they must have used the keys. Well, who has keys? You see? Mm -hmm. Um, We were talking about something one day and Tony sort of let it slip that Richie had been in Chuck's house um, and uh, when Chuck wasn't there and then I just you know I said well how is that possible you know I wasn't even thinking of Richie breaking in I just thought well is that cool with Chuck you know that's probably what I said was like "Is, is Chuck cool with that and then Tony sort of realizing that he had slipped you know, it's kind of corrected himself. And he said, oh, yeah, no, he goes, um, Richie has a set of keys. You know, Chuck gave him a set of keys. And, you know, so like basically, yeah, it's, it's fine. Like there's no problem with it. So I kind of knew um, this was, you know, maybe a month to six weeks before uh, the shooting, you know, that Richie could access Chuck's house more or less whenever he wanted. Um, and this has actually been confirmed by some other uh, people that I've talked to, some of the other kids at the time who had gone into Chuck's house with Richie and went through the front door. Richie just pulled out the keys and went through the front door and they hung out in Chuck's house for a little while. Kind of like it's just a safe space, a place where you can go and smoke a joint. You don't have to worry. And um, Okay, but if Chuck had given Richie a set of keys because he was doing tasks and chores for Chuck, right? Watering his lawn, things right. like that. Yeah. Chuck didn't know that they were going into just to hang out. I mean, what would he have allowed that? Probably not. I mean, I... I I don't even think that's true, though. I don't think that Chuck gave Richie the keys, Mm -hmm. you know. I think that they were stolen. And so, you know, up until now in the previous episodes, we've left it open, 
you know, I've posited both possibilities, but of course now it's becoming more and more clear as we continue through the story. Mm-hmm. If Chuck had given Richie the keys, he would have known Richie was the one in his house from the very beginning. I mean, it's, it's only logical, right? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Was he ever asked if he had given Richie keys? He didn't have to testify. You know, really the only stuff that I have from Chuck um, talking about any of this is when he um, is talking to the detective. And it's clear even from that statement that, you know, if he had given Richie the keys, he would have said something to the effect of, well, Richie had the keys, so I don't understand why he was going through the window. He could have just gone through the front door, um, that kind of thing. Um, So, yeah, I had considered that for many years because of the fact that Tony had given me this sort of false, misleading, you know, explanation of the keys. Yeah. So, so there was definitely a time when I thought that Richie might have gone in the house with the keys with Chuck's blessing. But now I've, I've come to realize that, no, that's probably not the case. Tony's outlandish testimony just continues to get more and more ridiculous. So much so that even the court stenographer is having trouble keeping up. So that's what this lawyer was trying to get to the bottom of. He's trying to figure out like, okay, so just tell me about these keys. I I need to know what's going on with the keys. And Tony says that the keys were stolen by someone. And the lawyer says, well, who is that? And he says, I, I can't say. And uh, the, the lawyer says, well, you know, you've sworn to, to tell the truth and all this stuff. He says, you have to, you know, tell me. He says, you don't have a choice, you know. And at that point, he blurts out this name. He says, Mike Fragamamente or something, <laughs> which, is, of course, is supposed to be me. My last name is not Fragamamente or however many extra syllables he puts in there to try to make it sound like a different last name. The stenographer obviously had difficulty spelling it. It even says in the deposition, spelt phonetically or something, because I think the lawyer even asked him, he said, "Um, can you please spell that last (laughs) name for me? And Tony says, no, I can't. So they just spelt it out in this really weird way. It was just like this weird uh, mutation of my name, you know? Yeah. Um, But he's basically, once again, he's pinning this thing on me. He's basically saying that I was the one who stole the keys. So the lawyer says, okay, well, how does this Mike character, how did he get the keys? He says, oh, well, the keys were missing or something. And then um, Mike found them. And he says, well, you just said that Mike stole these. He says, no, no. I, I said, Mike had the keys first and he found them. And he said, well, wait a minute. And Mike found these keys and like, where were they? And he said, oh, well, they were hanging up somewhere, but then they fell and then no one knew that they fell. And then Mike noticed there were these keys on the ground. And so Mike uh, picked them up and then Mike had them for a while. And the, the lawyer's just baffled. He's just like, okay, how does Mike even know whose keys these are? Was there a name tag saying these are keys to Chuck's house on him or something? How could Mike even know where these keys go like of course all of this is just a lie none none of this is true he's just inventing things on the spot yeah exactly and there's no logic to it he's just deflecting 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 um the lawyer asks uh where i live tony gives a false address he basically implicates me into this 
you know, when I had nothing to do with it. And this is like when he's under oath, you know, and they're trying to build a case after this kid had been shot. So uh, when I read that, the deposition... So that, um, that was the one in 2010, right? Yeah, exactly. So I called Tony and I questioned him about that. And once again, he denied it. And I think it really upset him. I honestly think that he forgot that he had done that. A couple nights later, um, really late in the evening, actually like in the morning, at like two in the morning, I got a phone call from Tony and I didn't answer it. I just, you know, I saw on my cell phone that it, he was calling me. So I just let it ring and I let it go to voicemail. And I figured, you know, he'll leave a message and then um, I'll call him back tomorrow or something. And I listened to his voicemail and um, it was one of the most disturbing messages I've ever heard in my life. He sounded medicated. He was slurring his words. He he sounded like he was in pain. Like he just sounded like he was really sad and just upset. And he was apologizing, uh, but I couldn't really make out any of the words. It was just slurring, like almost agonized sounds from a person who just seemed disoriented. And um, I haven't talked to him since. That was the end of our dialogue. We'll be right back. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I didn't know that Tony was trying to involve me in this uh, crime in any way, on any level. I, I had no idea. And it's clear that he didn't really want it to get back to me because that's why he butchered my name. He knew how to pronounce my name. He even knew how to spell my name, you know. So he was taking advantage of some of the ideas that Richie probably had a couple months earlier, two or three months earlier, which was let's plant some seeds for potential alibis if we get caught or something like that. And so here Tony is doing it. So that's why I'm saying some of this is true, but most of it is not. I mean, the, the overarching point he's trying to make is ridiculous. But you can see here what he's saying is, well, you know, Mike knew that they were stolen because somebody had called him and told him that the keys were stolen. The crank calls were very disturbing, but they were just another clue that, at the time, Mike didn't know where it fit in. All those years had to go by. 
until he finally read Tony's deposition. Well, yeah, somebody did call me and somebody did say my keys are stolen or something like that. I had no idea it had anything to do with Chuck. I had no idea who it was who was even calling me. It was, it was probably Richie. You know, maybe it was Tony. Maybe it was Jerry. I don't know. But um, it's just so interesting. It's so fascinating that like after all of these years that that one little piece of the puzzle, I finally knew where to put it. Like it was like, oh, my God, it goes right here, you know. Now, I just have to say something here. I can't imagine how it must have felt, just the revelatory significance of discovering this information nearly 30 years after the fact. It's just astounding. If Mike had any suspicion before that he was being set up as a scapegoat, think back to episode 3 and the weird Saturday afternoon with Jerry Burkowski. Then reading this deposition nearly three decades later, only substantiates any uncertainty that he ever had. Mike finally had proof. So that's why these depositions are useful. Like, that's the whole point of this segment of Mm -hmm. this episode, is to talk about how these depositions can be used in such a way where if you know how to read between the lines and you can weed through all of the ridiculous lying, that it can actually, it was a huge help for me, you know, putting this story together. And knowing how I fit in the story, how I was being used and I was being scapegoated um, by these guys, by these kids. So, um, so they never get to the bottom of the keys in this deposition. And the lawyer basically, I think at some point he realizes that Tony is just lying. Yeah, he just throws lying. up his hands. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And then he moves on to uh, trying to uh, figure out what kind of character Richard Brush had, mm-hmm. um, you know, what kind of kid he was. And, um, and ultimately, um, he asks him about smoking marijuana. A really funny part in this is where um, uh, Drucker asks Tony about whether he's, you know, smokes pot or, you know, what level of drug use he's, you know, he's tried or, you know, what kinds of drugs he's tried. And Tony basically says he's never smoked marijuana. Oh. Um, he says, <laughs> which is so ridiculous. Tony was such a pothead. And <laughs> we all were potheads, but but he was like one of the biggest potheads. So that's about as bold-faced lie as you can get <laughs> because marijuana had everything to do with it. Right, exactly. It was, that is the reason why they were breaking into the house. And yes, Tony smoked it. And yes, that was everything. So right there, that is the answer that Drucker is searching for, right? That is the, you know, the sine qua non, you know, the whole thing. And what does Tony do? Bold face lie. Like, he's just like, no, I don't smoke pot. Yeah, I saw Richie with it sometimes, um, but it's irrelevant because it had nothing to do with the shooting. So, and then... Trucker says, once again, getting back to the initial question, and your testimony today is that you never smoked any of that. And Tony says, nope. <laughs> That's literally the way he says, nope. <laughs> um, <laughs> when we get to the cross-examination, which is um, Mr. Lipton, um, there's a whole different demeanor going on now. Because remember, Tony was subpoenaed by the state. And so Drucker is asking Tony Tony is being more confrontational with Tony because he's trying to get information out of Tony. Mr. Lipton, on the other hand, who represents Chuck, says that, you know, you're not here because of me. Like, uh, I can cross-examine you because, you know, it's my defendant. But he basically tries to undermine 
the whole reason why Tony's even been uh, deposed. So mm-hmm. what this tells me, and you know, when I put all these pieces together, is that Chuck and Tony had buried the hatchet, and they decided to sort of work together to help Chuck. Tony, for whatever reason, saw an opportunity to uh, improve his friendship, his standing with Chuck. At this point, Tony still thinks Chuck's this really cool guy and would like to hang out with him if possible. And we're going to get into that in a second as to like what the problems were with that. Okay. But unfortunately, because of the way this works is, you know, we have to sort of jump over that, you know, to understand what's going on in the deposition. And um, what the Brush family was worried about was Richie's reputation. You know, it was shocking to them that Richie was stealing. And they lost, you know, their son and their brother. And even if you're stealing shit, you know, you're a kid and you're going through some phase where you're stealing that you don't deserve to be executed for it. So we can all agree that that was, you know, pretty harsh sentence that was passed on to Richie, right? So that's how his family felt. And they weren't making excuses or apologizing for their son's behavior or their brother's behavior, but, but they wanted to minimize the negative exposure. And they knew that Tony would know these things. And um, Tony was really, really close with Richie's family. Not just Richie, but his parents and his Richie's sisters and stuff like that. Okay, So uh, Richie's older sister did not want Tony to testify. So Tony more or less makes a promise that if he testifies, if he gives a deposition, whatever his role is in the coming court case, that he will not blemish Richie's legacy. So basically, he he tries to keep that agreement because he wants to stay on the good side of Richard Brush's family. But by the same token, he also wants to help Chuck. And Lipton, of course, is just giving Tony softball questions over the plate, right? Because these guys have already talked. They've already met ahead of the deposition. And they've discussed what they're going to say. And the strategy was to help Chuck. So Tony is there to help Chuck. The problem with this this triangle, um, is that the Brush family now despises Chuck. You see, there's no friendliness there anymore. They feel like their son is dead. Their brother is dead because this crazy Vietnam vet decided to set up a booby trap in his house when he could have just, you know, walked over to the Brush's house and said, Hey, your son's been breaking into my house. Could you do something about it? You know, I mean, and they just couldn't understand why this guy went to that extreme you know, to do something like that. It was just, you know, it's insanity. And now their son is dead. So they were just like really, really hurt and very angry at Chuck, as one could imagine. And Tony is caught in between these two diametrically opposed camps. And once again, if you add that to everything else that this kid's trying to do, and somehow, some way he pulls it off, he's able to 
more or less satisfy both. You know, he's able to not really blemish Richie's legacy, but also help to protect Chuck, you know, at the same time by just lying and just acting aloof. Jerry was um, subpoenaed by Mr. Lipton. So this is the opposite now, you see. And, and once again, this makes total sense because Chuck, at this point in time, is convinced that Jerry is the mastermind behind the break-ins and that some way, somehow, for some reason, it's Jerry's fault. Jerry is the one who's responsible. Meanwhile, Jerry hasn't even been charged with a crime. He's, he was out of town. He was missing. He eventually came back. He went to the police station. He, you know, they questioned him. This is um, September 28th, 1979. I think it's interesting that um, at this point in time that it just goes to show that the cops were really lagging. They were just overlooking all kinds of evidence. They had come to the conclusion already that, yeah, it was a booby trap and yeah, that's weird, but this guy was just defending his property. He was protecting his property. And unfortunately, this kid got shot. It's, it's more like an accident. It's like an accidental shooting is the way that they sort of viewed it. So they didn't do a lot of heavy investigation. And when they finally talked to Jerry and they more or less got his side of the story, they realized it's pretty much confirmed what they thought, which was Jerry just said, yeah, I was with him and I helped him get through the window, but that was it. So at this point, Drucker's not even sure that, you know, if if that's common knowledge, then they don't really need much from Jerry, which I think is just a huge mistake, okay? Because, like I said, any one of us kids at that time, if you had asked any one of us, we knew how much Jerry was involved, and Chuck knew. And that's the reason why Chuck asked his lawyer to subpoena Jerry, because he felt like Jerry's the only kid here who's going to tell us what the hell really happened. And so it's a completely different deposition from that standpoint, because the person who's doing most of the questioning is Mr. Lipton. And he's being pretty hostile with Jerry. I mean, he's not treating him nicely. And eventually, when you get to the end of it, you get to the cross-examine, which is by Drucker. So he's basically just saying, look, I'm willing to ask you some questions right now because you don't have a lawyer. So it's like when you watch a cop show, it's like, you know, whatever you say now, I can use it against you. But I, I need to remind you, I need to let you know that you're entitled to have a lawyer here, mm-hmm. you know, if you want. But by the same token, what Drucker says is, it, it sort of gives you a, a, a glimpse into the mind of this guy. He's a pretty good lawyer. And he's basically sort of hinting at the fact that if you don't answer my questions, he says, I'm going to take that to be very suspicious. He's saying, I'm giving you a chance now to, to sort of come clean and go on the record. And you don't have to. And if it turns out that you are responsible and you did something really bad, I could use that to help build a case. He says, if you're worried, you should get a lawyer. He says, but if you leave right now, and you can totally leave if you want to, and if you leave and you decide to not answer my questions, that's going to be noted in the record. And he's basically saying, it's kind of like a, a subtle threat. He's just saying, you know, it's giving me a clear indication that you have something to hide. And that's exactly what Jerry does. That's exactly what he and his father, um, they get up and they leave. You know, so right there, it's almost like an admission of guilt. Because most time, if somebody doesn't have anything to hide, they just say, no, it's fine. Ask me some questions. It's cool. Like, I know I didn't do anything wrong, so, so ask away. Um, but he doesn't say that. It's very guarded. 
And then Mr. Harvey, uh, Jerry's dad, says, thank you very much. As if, like, at this point, Ken has been very nice to them after this other guy hadn't been so nice. So Mr. Drucker says, just for the record, let the record reflect that after telling Mr. Burkowski that he did have a right to leave at any time, that Mr. Burkowski did at that time leave, and I would take that as an indication that he doesn't want to answer my questions voluntarily. He doesn't want to answer my questions voluntarily. Assistant State Attorney Ken Drucker's skillful manipulation of the situation got him what he wanted. That is, Jerry's refusal to talk, as noted on the record. And that's important because while it doesn't directly implicate him, it casts a subtle shadow of a doubt on his story. And as we'll see, Jerry definitely had a lot to hide. Now, to their credit, Jerry and his father actually did the right thing because answering any questions without having legal counsel in a situation where you could possibly implicate yourself in a crime, well, that's a really bad idea. In other words, you should always lawyer up. So um, as far as uh, Mr. Lipton and some of the questions he asked Jerry, um, he basically lies. It's just bold-faced lying. He says he was with Richie that day. They were in summer school at the time because it was July. Um, They saw him in the morning. They rode the bus together. And then after school, they came back. Jerry went over to Richie's house. Richie went, walked over to to Chuck's to water the lawn. Um, This is according to Jerry. They talked for about 10 minutes while Richie was watering the lawn. And then Jerry said he went home to do homework and chores. And that was the last time he ever saw Richie. And then he said that a few hours later, um, he called, you know, to find out where Richie was. And his mom said she didn't know where Richie was. And then later in the evening, one of the other scouts called Jerry and told him that Richie had been shot and killed. And that's basically all he admits to. And at this point in time, all of us kids in the neighborhood knew that Jerry was with Richie when Richie broke into the house. That was just common knowledge. So the fact that this is, you know, in September and Jerry's still denying any involvement whatsoever in the whole thing. So that's what's shocking about this. Um, The one thing that he does sort of shed light on, like I said, all these depositions offer a little bit of something, is the relationship he had with Chuck. And the lawyer, Mr. Lipton, asks him point blank. He says, Mm -hmm. you know, were you in Chuck's house? the day that Richie was shot. And Jerry says, no, why would I be? Or something like that. And it's, it becomes clear uh, as Mr. Lipton is asking Jerry questions, he basically says, uh, you know, were you a scout? And Jerry says, yes, I was a scout. And he says, from when? He says, from 1977 until 1979. He says, you're no longer in the scouting troop? And Jerry says, no. And Mr. Lipton says, why? And Jerry says, because I was voted out. And Lipton says, you were voted out by the other scouts? And Jerry says, um, says yeah. Then he says, um, did Chuck suspect that you were the one breaking into his house? And Jerry says, yeah, I think that's what he thought. And then the lawyer says, is that the reason why you got kicked out of the scouting troop? And Jerry said, yeah, probably. Maybe. I don't know. Um, so this is important because... It's clear that at the time of the shooting that Jerry had just been kicked out of the scouting troop and that Chuck definitely didn't like him. And as a matter of fact, Chuck 
or was already very hostile with Jerry, had already been hostile towards him for a couple months. But what's interesting at the same time is that everyone also knew that Jerry and Richie were more or less best friends at that point. So I don't know how Richie sort of balanced this thing, but either he told Chuck that he wasn't friends with Jerry anymore to keep things cool with Chuck, or he told him that he was still friends with Jerry, but he tried to minimize the amount of time he hung out with him and stuff like that, you know, because I'm sure that Chuck probably told Richie, hey, you shouldn't be hanging out with this kid anymore. Another thing is, I don't know that if Richie was one of the scouts who voted Jerry out, maybe Richie was one of the few who said, like, no, I want to keep Jerry in the scouts, but he was, you know, outvoted. Um, but mm-hmm. ultimately, that's more or less what happens to Jerry. And... Um, and that's more or less what creates tension between uh, Jerry and Chuck, which would give Jerry a motive to sort of get back at Chuck for being hostile towards him, for you know getting him kicked out of the scouting troop. A camping we will go, a camping we will go. Hi-ho, and off we go, a camping we On a Friday go. night in May of 1979, hey, like roughly two months before Richie's murder, Tony, who had been invited to go on a weekend camping trip with Richie in Troop 85, unexpectedly showed up at Mike's house. Mike, who wasn't expecting to see Tony that weekend, asked him what had happened and why he wasn't with the scouts. Tony's answer revealed a shocking secret about the camping trips, the scouts, and most importantly, Chuck Falco. Hi-ho, enough we go, it's time to go to sleep. We'll be right back. So um, I think it was a Friday that Tony was really bummed out, like he was really let down. And I remembered that he had told me like earlier in the week that he was going to be going on the camping trip with Richie. They were going to be gone, you know, Friday night and Saturday night and come back on Sunday. And they were going to be in T.Y. Park, which was kind of this big area that scouts used to go camping in and stuff. But um, and so he comes over to my house on this Friday and, um, and I said to him, like, I thought you were going to be um, camping with Richie. And he says, nah, they didn't let me go. And I said, well, what happened? So he says, well, it's Chuck. He said, you know, he starts saying like bad things about Chuck. He's just saying like, well, you know, Chuck's kind of an asshole and stuff. And I said, what do you mean he's an asshole? This is before I met Chuck, by the way. So we're backing up a little. This is when Chuck to me was still like a mysterious character who was supposed to be cool, you know. And Tony's like, he just says, oh, Chuck's kind of an asshole. And I said, well, I thought that they, you know, you were going to be allowed to come, like, even though you're not a scout, like you're going to be able to go and all that stuff. And and they were going to make a special sort of arrangement for you. And he said, yeah, that's what, that's what it was supposed to be. But then Chuck changed his mind in the last second. And, um, but, uh, and let me so, ask you something. Why is Tony so interested in a camping trip? I mean, that doesn't sound like his kind of thing at all. Well, because what he proceeds to tell me next is why he's so bummed out. Okay. And um, here we are sitting at my house as usual. Um, without any pot and it's a Friday night and, you know, we're trying to figure out what we're going to do. Okay. And basically what our weekends were like is, you know, we wanted to get stoned, Mm -hmm. 
that's it. I mean, like, just you know, find someone, smoke a joint or whatever. And then try to find a party where we could, like, find some girls, you know, and flirt around. Maybe, like, meet a girl or something. Um, and that was it. I mean, that was basically, those two things went together hand in hand. Yeah. And it's very important that I say this now because this is the reason why what Tony tells me next seems so weird to me, okay? Is to me, it's like the idea of getting high like after a hard day's work, that's not what I did at 14. I know people do that now. You know, you sort of work and you you have your drink when you come home and you relax, you have a beer or some people like to smoke pot, you know, and they just unwind and they they take a hit or whatever and it just relaxes them. That's not what 14-year-old kids do. What we do is we want to get high and we want to have an adventure. You know, we don't need to unwind. We're not adults, okay? We want to, like, explore. We want to, like, check things out. And we definitely want to socialize in a situation where there's a potential hot girl that you could meet for the first time, get her phone number and, like, stuff like that. So, you know, when Tony says to me the reason why he's so bummed out is because Chuck was bringing, you know, he had an arsenal of drugs that he was bringing on this camping trip and that Tony would be spending the whole weekend wasted. Like, that's what he says. Like, I would have been wasted this whole weekend. It would have been so great. And I said, well, what does Chuck have? And, I, and like I said, I already knew that he had pot, you know, but I didn't think that that it would go much further than that. And, um, and Tony says, no, no. When they go on these camping trips, he goes like, they do it big. He says like, Chuck brings quaaludes. Um, he brings vodka. Um, he brings pot. Sometimes he brings Coke. He goes, these camping trips that Richie goes on, these are just an excuse to just get wasted for the whole weekend. And you don't have to worry about your parents or anything. Like you just set up your tent and you can just get as wasted as you want. And like, nobody cares. And I said, wow, okay. That's not what I thought the scouts were doing, you know, like, I just thought, okay, that's, you know, for a second there, I thought, wow, that's okay, you know, but the more I thought about it, it, I got to say almost, almost instantly, the thought sort of crossed my mind. It's like, okay, you get wasted, but then what? Because for me, and I'm not saying everyone has to be like me and think like me, but I'm saying most of the kids in my neighborhood were like me and did think like me because we were all kind of like doing the same stuff. And I was thinking, okay, so you you smoke some pot or you do whatever, you're you're in the middle of nowhere. Like, are there any girls out there? Like, that's, you know, that's the next question I had for him. I said, well, that would be great if there was like some Girl Scouts in the next, you know, (laughs) the next acre over. Uh Like, that would be awesome. Like, you could like invite them over and like totally party like in the tents. Like, that would be cool, you know, to me. So I kind of said to him, I go, well, I see what you're saying, Tony, but how much fun could it be? I mean, it's just a bunch of guys like in a tent, you know, I don't, okay. So you get stoned and whatever, but then what, you know, I don't, I don't know. It just seemed like, like what I was saying before, if it's one of these situations where you're going to do all this stuff in the day, like Boy Scout stuff, like fishing and, you know, building things and whatever, like this outdoors stuff. And then as reward at the end of the night, you know, you get to like 
smoke a joint. Okay, I could see that. That's kind of the adult way of getting high. But that's not what Tony was describing. He was describing that the sole purpose for going on these trips was to get wasted, Mm -hmm. right? So you see what I'm saying? That's a different psychology. And so I'm thinking, you know, he and I are hanging out. And then I'm saying, well, well, what happened between you and Chuck? And um, I kept on pressing him on this. A lot of times I was kind of push his buttons a little and I would just keep on nagging at him until he would, you know, give me an answer. And finally, he just blurted it out and he just says, well, he goes, Chuck's mad at me because he made a pass at me. And I said, what? I said, Chuck made a pass at you? And he said, he goes, yeah, he made a pass at me. And I, and I, I just told him I wasn't into that, man. You know, I just, you know, I kind of rejected him. And it's just like, wow, it was kind of shocking. I just, I yeah. hadn't thought of that at all. You know, that there'd be some sort of attraction there with Tony and Chuck. And that just seemed odd to me. It just didn't seem like I, of course, as usual, I, you know, it's like thought he was lying, you know. But why would he say that? Because that's somewhat embarrassing, too, you know. And I just thought that that was a really weird thing to say. Um, I also knew that Chuck was married. So I kind of just it just the whole thing just seemed really inconsistent to me. Um but I let it go, and um, and the whole thing just kind of, I just sort of, you know, remembered it as this weird incident where Tony was supposed to go camping and didn't go because Chuck made a pass at him, and he, you know, rejected Chuck's pass, and then Chuck was mad at Tony for that, and just said, okay, well then forget it, you're not going on the camping trip, you know? And the whole time that he said that, I had already been thinking that it was odd that these boys would want to get that wasted and just sit in tents with each other. Like, I just, my mind started to go to that place that I know we're all thinking right now, which is, what were these boys really doing, Mm -hmm. you know? Tony's description of Troop 85, partying with Chuck, left Mike feeling weird about the scouts. To him, something seemed off about it. This suspicion of Chuck's true intentions led him to speculate about what the scouts were actually doing on these camping trips. So eventually, there were rumors in the neighborhood that a couple of these kids were you know, um, having sex on these camping trips. And initially I thought that it was just like a mean rumor. Um, a couple of the scouts were a little bit older, like more like my brother's age. And, uh, some of my brother's friends had sort of said, or, you know, gossiped or rumored that a couple of those guys might've been gay or bisexual or whatever, you know? Um, and that, that really what was going on with the scouting troop was that they were just a, and this is not me saying this, this is in quotations. They were just a bunch of little homos, you know, that they would go on these camping trips. And, and that's pretty much the way one of my brother's friends actually described it. He just said, Oh yeah, those guys, those are just, they're just a bunch of little homos. You know, they go on their little trips. That was like a rumor that I heard. And I didn't know, you know, it wasn't until Tony told me about this camping trip that I really started to think that it was probably true, you know, and, um, and the details came out later on that indeed it was true. Now there's a big difference between a 14 year old kid experimenting 
you know, not really knowing if he likes girls or boys, you know, that there's nothing wrong with that. So if some of the scouts decided, you know, they're in the tent and they decide that that's something they want to do, that's their own business. Kids are kids, you know, um, that's not what we're talking about here. As it turns out, it's Chuck who's initiating this sex play stuff. And that's the reason why he's bringing pills, quaaludes and vodka and marijuana as he's trying to ply these kids and um the way it was described to me so it's not just tony telling his lies about drugs there's something to it oh yeah it's he's not lying he's he's he was telling the truth they really did have drugs and they really were getting wasted and that stuff was really going on uh, did you think that at the time that he was doing one of his exaggerations like one of his imaginary yeah of uh, course things like uh, oh the big party and all of that of course yeah that that the camping trips were really just an excuse to get wasted and they had all this all these drugs i thought he was just bullshitting you know but the more he talked about it the more i realized yeah okay i could see that and then like i said before my mind shifted more that it probably was true but then what's the point you know like why would you want to be isolated like Mm -hmm. you know like I said before, you know, our, our MO was, yeah, you wanted to go to a party or somewhere where people were partying, but you wanted to be able to socialize. So it's just odd to me that they would want to go in a secluded area just to, you know, get so wasted. Um, so, but like I said before, the truth came out eventually that um, it was Chuck initiating all of this stuff. So now we're in the realm of pedophilia, you know, we're in the realm of a sexual predator. And this adds a whole other dynamic to Chuck Falco. I mean, He's already responsible for a boy's death. You know, we can call it accidental. We can, you know, we're going to talk more about, you know, the assumptions, you know, our our conjecture, what we think actually happened with the booby trap and all of that stuff. But aside from that, this guy was doing some really bad things um, to boys, you know, minors. And not only is it illegal to, you know, uh, do the drugs with minors, but it certainly is illegal to have sex. What I was told eventually by Tony Simmons was that uh, Chuck would visit each tent. There was usually two kids to a tent, and he would make an appearance. And um, the scouts would look forward to him because he was the cool guy. And so, like, he didn't always visit your tent. You know, he didn't always get to each kid's tent. So it was sort of like an honor if he went into your tent. You know, that meant that he was, like, into you that night. And, um, and he would molest these kids. I mean, there's no other way of putting it. He would have them perform sex acts on each other, and he would take pictures. Um, he was an amateur photographer, so he could develop. He actually had a dark room in his house, so he could develop pictures. And he would take pornographic shots of them. And he also had a, a one of those old um, cameras, you know, the, the pre-video ones, the eight millimeter film ones. Mm-hmm. And he would make those the, the little, you know, little sex movies and stuff. And he would develop those. So um, he would use these pictures and the films to blackmail the boys in case they decided to have a change of heart he would basically threaten them and say he would expose them he would he he one time he was even quoted as saying that he would post pictures of them in compromised ways all around the school that's like our generation at the time growing up in the 70s that's a kid's worst nightmare you know for other boys to find out that you did that and and then especially if there's pictures if there's evidence so he had complete control over these kids complete control you know he was uh pulling all the strings 
And as long as this system worked for him, this MO, this approach, you know, you could set your watch to it the way that he did it. He would get the kids, like Tony said, they, Chuck would make a pass at you. He would get very suggestive. Um, sometimes he would just pull his pants down or something like that. And he would just hope that the kid would respond the way that he would want the kid to respond. And if the kid pulled back or withdrew, um, Chuck would not press himself on the kid. He would just keep on trying. He would just, you know, sort of relentlessly keep on going back and just keep on through repetition. Hopefully, at some point, the kid would just give in and say, oh, what the heck? The other scouts are doing it anyway. I might as well just go along with it. That kind of thing, you know. So that's what I mean by the M.O. That was the method. Mm-hmm. That, that's, that was the way that he did it. And supplying them um, with the drugs as well and sort of oh, trying of course, to bait yeah. them with that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That was a big part of it. So tell me about what Jerry said in his second deposition. What happened with Jerry was, um, he's, as he says in his 1983 deposition, they were camping in this part of the park that had like, um, in the in the park they had like a facility, like a you know the public could use, like public bathrooms and shower stalls, and so the kids would go in there to shower, and supposedly when he went in there to shower, when he came out he was still naked. Chuck was there, and uh, tried to grab his genitals, and Jerry was offended and basically told him, you know, he rejected Chuck's advance. And Jerry uh, got very confrontational with Chuck because, you know, Jerry was kind of a tough kid and, and he basically defended himself. And he said, no, man, I'm not into that. And it really turned Chuck off to the point to where Chuck was genuinely worried about Jerry because uh, Jerry was not, he didn't have anything to compromise Jerry, you see, at this point. And he was worried that Jerry could expose this whole thing. Jerry could tell his parents, Jerry could, you know, get Chuck into a lot of trouble. So uh, that's why Chuck eventually uh, orchestrated in such a way where Jerry got kicked out of the scouts because uh, Chuck just couldn't control him. Chuck had no power over Jerry. And um, now whether Jerry eventually did, you know, do stuff with the other boys, I mean, I really don't know. That's, That's Jerry's business. But see, the difference here, like I specified earlier, the difference is not whether the boys do it willingly amongst themselves. That's different. It's whether they're doing it because Chuck is forcing them or manipulating them. And that's what Jerry was resistant to. Jerry didn't want to be controlled by Chuck. You know, he didn't want Chuck to have anything on him. And so that's what led to the friction between Jerry and Chuck. And from that point on, Chuck did not want, he didn't want to see Jerry. He would, he ostracized Jerry. Um, Jerry was still in the scouts and would go on some of these trips, but Jerry would always be left out. Like he would never get Chuck's attention. Chuck would just ignore him and treat him badly, you know. And then eventually um, they decided to vote him out. And maybe it is because Chuck suspected that it was Jerry. Jerry was trying to get back at Chuck by breaking into his house. And then, you know, so you could see that this whole thing had been building for a while. And Tony told me something in 2009, 2010. He said that Chuck wanted Jerry to go through that window. The bathroom window of Chuck's house. Yeah. And the whole point, that's why Chuck was so upset when he found out it was Richie. You see what I'm saying? According to Tony Simmons, Chuck set that trap up to kill Jerry to get rid of Jerry once and for all because he knew that Jerry could out him and could expose him for the pedophile that he was. So all of this stuff makes sense now. 
And it's amazing that given everything we know now in this narrative, that the community had no idea that Chuck was molesting these scouts. They had no idea. And the community was 100% behind Chuck to the point to where they started a petition that was called Friends for Falco. Next time on Booby Trap. The 20 Falco supporters present this evening vowed to help their friend by circulating petitions demanding that the manslaughter charges be dropped based on the right to protect one's own property. Friends for Falco was a petition that was circulated around the community. We really believed that he was a good guy. There was nothing about him that would make you believe that he was a monster. He just Snowed everybody. The Miami Chronicles Booby Trap is produced, written, and recorded by James Archer and Michael Fragamani. We'd like to thank the following people for their help and contributions in creating this episode Dan Wool, Mark McCartney, Kurt Chaboyer, Mr. Sonny Duval, Alex Padue, Todd Statman, Liana Echeverry, and the team at the Apostrophe Podcast Company. But most of all, a very heartfelt thanks to you, our listeners. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Do you want to know more about vampires, werewolves, zombies, and man-made monsters? Would you like to know more about the classic Universal Monster movies responsible for creating the entire horror genre? Then listen to our podcast, Let's Talk Monsters. Where we discuss everything monsters. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, or wherever you get your podcasts.